Hey, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Winning Momentum Podcast with your host. That's me, Scott Sinclair. I'm excited. I have a very special guest with us today, Larry O'Brien, leader of DGov3. Is that the way I say that, Larry? Yeah, DGov3. DGov3, founder of Kalyan Group, former mayor of Ottawa, Canada. Larry, about three quarters of our audience is in the U.S., so... Ottawa is the Canadian Washington. It's a city of, I don't know, a million people, more or less. Exactly. It just, just went over a million uh, last year. There you go. Best-selling author of The Ethical Entrepreneurship. We will be talking about that. A celebrated citizen, an entrepreneur, and a blockchain advocate. Larry founded uh, Kellyan Tech. Larry, the first three pages of my notes are just your background, so you're just going to have to bear with me here <laughs> okay. for, for the audience. Uh, founder of Kellyan Technologies, um, which he took from uh, zero to, I think it says a $35 investment to a $200 million plus uh, a year publicly traded company, still listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol CGY. Is that correct? That is right. Um, And the company, yeah, we did that. During the growth, um, Larry was CEO, chairman, managed five major major acquisitions, an IPO and organic growth into the U.S. and across Canada. And after retirement, Larry became the 58th mayor of Ottawa, where he says in his uh, profiles that, well, not everything is like a business. I want to know more about that. Larry. <laughs> You're right. You're right. You'll, you'll learn lots more. <laughs> Government is not a business. That is for sure. Because I always think it is. I always think that a CEO ought to transition into that role relatively easily, but maybe you're going to tell me you that's know, not the case. You know, the, you know, the best way to put it before you carry on huh? is in business, if I help you become better, if I work for you, if I help you become more successful, I, by definition, become more successful because you'll come back and help me at some point. It is right. just the way it works in business. In politics, I become better if I cut your throat, really? if I knock you off the table. Uh, even people in your own parties, you, you're always competing with them. And so it's such a different mindset for a successful entrepreneur. or an, It's a, a zero-sum game mindset. It's a trading to, mindset. To, 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 yeah, to transition. The governance, and, and you'll, you'll, you'll notice that a lot of the very successful politicians have never been in business, and they've never been, uh, um, and you sort of have to understand where they come from, but a lot of very successful politicians, whether they're at the federal level, uh, the state level, provincial level, they only know uh, how to work the game so that they can get reelected. You know what's and interesting the, about what the, you just the said. The other one is special, but not many. Not many. You know what's interesting about that is I, when I was uh, younger and not so smart, used to put politicians on my board of directors in a public company to get the name re- recognition. And then after a couple of years, I, I just stopped because I concluded that all that politicians know how to do is politic uh, to create yeah. division. And to create trouble where it doesn't need to exist. That was my experience, which sounds to me is exactly what you're saying. Yeah, no, that's precisely what I'm saying. And don't get me wrong. There there, there are certain politicians that have very clear uh, views and uh, very, few, very, few, uh, very specific approaches to the world. And they're special. And they are good. And thank, thank, thank goodness that we have the occasional superstar that comes along that uh, can understand politics and 
has a specific drive to uh, make the world better. But they're they're few and far between, and uh, we the citizens don't have a lot of voice in what's going on, and that's part of what I'm involved. That's in, part of what we're going to talk about today yeah. for sure. While mayor of Ottawa. Larry was able to push forward some major development project projects, including a light rail transit system, which was completely unique to Ottawa. Ottawa, I used to live there, Larry. I don't know if you remember that back in the day, but um, um, completely a bus city, very much bus focused. And Larry came up with a light rail transit uh, system, uh, developed the Shaw Center, which is a trade show facility, uh, redeveloped 40 acres of basically... I don't want to call it Wasteland, but now known as Lans- Lansdowne Park. Is that right? In Ottawa? Lansdowne Park, yeah. yeah. It was 29 acres of parking oh, lot. Oh, it was 29? We, yeah. 29 acres of parking lot that we redeveloped into something spectacular. It's now a, a center hive. It's been a, it had been a center hive of Ottawa for 100 years, but it had deteriorated to the point that it was just a parking lot. And, right. Uh, so we, we worked with – it's the first major municipal pro- program in Canada of that of that size and that magnitude that didn't ask for a single dollar of federal or provincial money. The, the, the corporation of the city of Ottawa, we partnered with three uh, corporations to make this happen. And we put this into a 99 year lease back. And uh, so, so this is unique. And that was, was the early day days of public private partnerships, I assume. Uh, well, it, public uh, private Partnerships are, are uh, normally done at the federal level or the provincial level. They're not seldom done, oh, okay. done at the municipal level. Right. And uh, as a matter of fact, municipalities in Canada, for your American uh, uh, viewers, they're creatures of the province. We have very little uh, flexibility uh, in what we do. Uh, we have what they call a weak mayor system in, in uh, Canada, where the, the mayors have to have the, all of the, the councillors or all of the the assemblymen on their side to get something done. So it makes it really awkward for someone to get a major program through. But somehow through uh, uh, chaos and, and uh, concentration and a lot of other things, we were able to get uh, those three major projects done. And they had been sitting there. They were the low-hanging fruit for about 25 Absolutely. years, but no politician wanted to do it because every time you do something significant in a city, you're going to make enemies. Yeah, and if you do two or three significant things, your career is just about over, which is what happened to me. By the time I finished with those uh, those major uh, uh, programs, I had little bits of people all over the city that weren't quite happy with me because they, it, you know, if you lived in the Glebe, which is right beside Lansdowne, you didn't want any development. You wanted it to become a park, so they didn't like me. And uh, there were a lot of people who didn't like the light rail program, and there was a lot of people who didn't like who, some of the other things. Who so did you follow? I, I even, I, who did you follow as mayor? I followed a chap called Bob Shirelli, who's running again for mayor. Our elections are just coming yeah. up now. Yeah. And uh, a very competent uh, professional politician by, by the name of Jim Watson kicked the heck out of me using all... all oh, all so all Jim all. came in after you. And then, yeah, Jim, Jim so came in after me. McGinty he's a real good politician. McGinty was before Shirelli then. Uh, McGinty was a, was a provincial leader. The brother was, but didn't he have a mayor? Or and I don't think nope. ever had a okay, uh, but it was a family but, from Ottawa. Okay, okay. I'm let's not dive into too much into the yeah. <laughs> details. That's into the weeds, Scott. Ottawa <laughs> politics. 
Well, just because yeah. I had a story about that, but it's not appropriate for a podcast anyways. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Larry uh, was advisor to Prime Minister uh, Jean Chrétien, where he sat on the Council of Science and Technology, also an advisor to Premier Michael Harris for Ontario. For our U.S. friends, that would be the same as a, a governor, basically a state governor. Uh, chairman of the Special Advisory Group on Information Technology, uh, chairman of the Canadian Advanced Technology Association, which I think back in the day during the technology boom, that, that organization was a big deal, as I recall. Author of the best-selling book, Ethical Entrepreneurship. If you're on the audio version of this podcast, you're not seeing me holding up the book, but I have a copy of it here. It's a terrific book. And and as Larry says here, it's, and you it's can- you can still buy that. You can still download it. You can still download it on Amazon. I don't think they've, I don't think they've reprinted it yet. But you can download it for free uh, on the Amazon for free. Oh, okay. Of, yeah, I think it can be downloaded for free. And it's Ethical Entrepreneurship by Larry O'Brien. Get a hold of that. And we're going to talk about that today. It's won a bunch of awards, and uh, including the Queen's Jubilee Award. United Way Person of the Year, Technology Person of the Year issued by the province, Business Person of the Year uh, uh, issued by the Ottawa Board of Trade. Did I miss anything in this long and storied career? I, I don't feel that old. And it's funny to hear you talking about that, Scott, because whenever you're active and busy and trying to do things, you never... You don't even notice. You, track. you, don't, you don't keep track. And, yeah. uh, but that's a, I think you hit most of the highlights. Uh, and one thing I haven't really talked on, but we're going to get to that uh, at the end, is your current venture in democracy and voting systems. And so I find that very interesting. And so but we'll, we'll get to that uh, a little bit later. I want to start off, Larry, with the... You, you, did miss one, you did miss one thing, though. Yep. My first business before I started Callian was my six-month MBA pro- program, where I started a company in 1979. And I made every single mistake possible to make in six short months and destroyed the company completely. Spent the next two years trying to figure out why someone as smart as I thought I was could screw up so badly and uh, realized that I was the problem. Took full, full accountability for every mess up. But in that process, I came up with all the material that I put down in, in the book that you did. In the book. About. And, and so uh, that, to me, is a perfect segue to the very first quote I picked out of this book, which is that success has a lot to do with the right habits and the right frame of mind. It's really, you didn't say this in the book, but for me, it's it's not really about smarts at all and how intelligent you are. It's about the habits and the routines and the systems that you have put in place. Is that is that your thinking? I, I, I think you're absolutely right, because... You know, it, it has to be a cohesive approach to running your business. And what I found when, when I sat and looked at my feet, my, my navel for two and a half years after I failed spectacularly, and not just a simple failure. I went personally bank, bankrupt. I, uh, uh, you know, they towed my car away. I was living in a friend's on a friend's couch. I mean, they're really drastic kind of, of uh, humiliating, have your nose rubbed in the pee kind of bankruptcy. And I spent two and a half years studying, um, you know, why I, that happened. And I realized I didn't have a solid value system to make decisions because right. success is not one decision. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of decisions 
made repetitively. And that's when you come into your habit. How do you how do you move forward in a, in a, in a business? And by the way, before I failed, I, I was a physics uh, technology uh, uh, chap. I worked uh, for Nortel, design, helping design some of the first integrated circuits that were designed in Canada in the 70s. So my background was technology until I decided to jump into the business world. So, um, you know, when I had my failure, it was the worst moment in my life. And it was also the best moment in my life because, because it allowed me at age 29 to re restructure my value system right. and also allowed me to realize I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. And uh, you, you need to have a strong moral compass to be successful. And these, these habits that you talk about that you learned, what, what are they that have carried through to today? I you? still use them every day. It's, yeah. uh, I have these four values that I use to test to, you know, test decisions. Like, as a CEO, you're often going to, you know, I'll use it at the CEO level, you're often going to be given an op- a number of different solutions for a problem my company is facing. And often it's going to come from people within your organization. Um, and uh, you're going to have to, you're the one who's going to ultimately make those decisions. So I had these four value tests that I applied to every decision that I made. And one was be honest. And by being honest, I don't mean just telling the truth because that's pretty easy for most people. Being honest, do you know the facts? Have you dug deep enough into the in, into the problem to understand what you're really facing with? Because some, most of the time when you mess up, it's because you really didn't dig deep enough into the into the topic. So have you or your people dug deep enough? So be honest with the, with what you know about yourself and what you know about your organization. Um, think long-term. This is a surprising one. Whenever I was given an option with a short-term solution versus a long-term solution, I always picked the long-term solution. And this is a surprising part. It always, and I mean always, produced the shortest-term results because it puts you on track with other people who are thinking long-term. And when they say you're making the right long-term decisions, when you put in an SAP system, when you're a $35 million company, the government looks around and says, those people want to, those people want to, you know, uh, do business for a they, long time. They, they want to be They're in the industry. They're going to be eligible for doing contracts with right. us. Hmm? Right. They want to yeah, be so, in the industry. So, as, so as I'm sitting around in my one-year-old tier one, tier two automotive manufacturer that I bought, and we've got out of bankruptcy from somebody else, and we've got through the chaos of the first year. And I'm looking at, for example, a long-term capital expenditure budget. I, it's not just the dollar and cents. It's the signal to the market, the way I see it, that we're in this business for good. And that's similar to what you just said, or the same thing as what you just said, perhaps. And, and you're going to and you're going to find once you've made those ca- the, the right long term capital investments that people are going to say, "Well, oh, this is going to make it easier for me to trust doing business with Scott." Right. And so it becomes a bit of a reputational, uh, you know, because larger organizations and that's who you want to do business with don't always want to do business with weak players because they know their own vulnerability in their own supply chain. So once you make those investments, you're going to have some doors open for you that you didn't even know about as you're sitting here today talking to me. Yep. And I can, I can, I can almost get. Well, I will guarantee it because it will happen. And then um, the, the third test was a was more of a reputational one. Is are you adding value when when you have a make a decision? Are you adding value to all the players in the equation? Are you adding value to your clients? Are you adding value to your employees? Are you adding value to yourself? Uh, are, are you, uh, you know, are you, or, or just as importantly, who are you, 
uh, you're doing something that's going to hurt someone because your reputation becomes so important as you um, build out a company, particularly at this time. When I wrote this book, it was uh, just after the 2007, 2008, uh, you know, right around that time. And ethical entrepreneurship was important because people needed to know how to start a business and how to build a business with very little capital. When I started Kelly and I started with 35 bucks and uh, built it up from a one-person consulting company into something big based on reputation. So if you're adding value to everybody in the equation, your reputation will grow and your word will become more of a bond. And so that too will make your your uh, world uh, easier. And then the, the the fourth value is just plain old-fashioned prudence. Right? Don't be silly with your money. Don't be silly with your resources. Right. Don't be with your emotional energy, your intellectual en- en- energy. Or as I like to, I paraphrase it uh, with one simple sentence, never buy your banker a lunch because they make enough money, those buggers. So you, you, you know, you, as, you, as, you a, as a banker, as a banker, I'm, I'm, I'm not in agreement with that advice, but <laughs> <laughs> I know I, I use that. Gonna, as a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I use that. You know, there's all sorts of professionals around you and, and uh, they're always there for you as long as you can pay their fees. Uh, so be prudent with your money. And that's actually another asset test. If you don't know enough about law, if you don't know enough about your business, if you don't know enough about accounting, uh, that you have to rely on outside professionals for every decision, you're probably not going to make it. 100%. Because you better you better have that general understanding of everything in your industry and everything in your business, and yeah. your marketing. And, all yeah. that. and, and I'm lucky. And, I, was and even, I was blessed to be a general. So. It's not just the money. It's that it just slows down the pace of business so dramatically. That it becomes yeah. dysfunctional, and it, right? and it and it can be the money too sometimes because they're not as you know. It's funny, I was having a talk with an entrepreneur the other day, and and they have a bunch of professional managers with them. And he said, "Larry, I just they just they're making decisions as a professional manager, but they don't get you know the, the business need I have. They don't understand that this is you know." Survival, and I always say that the only job a CEO has, the only real job a CEO has, is to make sure the company never runs out of cash. And, right. and uh, you know, and and that, but in order to do that, you have to have how many different skill sets to understand wh- where you can everything. Be in trouble. Yeah, yeah, you just have to. Yeah, so, because you know, in, in your, the skill set, the skill set that you don't have is the one that's going to take all your cash, guaranteed. Right. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not what you know for sure that's going to kill you. It's what you. It's, what, it's, you it's think you know you to be know true, but you know for sure that isn't so. Yeah, exactly. That's what, yeah. yeah. Um, so honesty, long-term thinking, adding value, and prudence—that is the the four values that are the heart of the book, uh, yeah. the ethical entrepreneur. And you just reviewed those. I just want to dive in, if you don't mind, a little bit more deeply onto each one because this show is called the Winning Momentum Podcast, and it's the idea here, Larry, is that. In the U.S. last year, there were 6 million new businesses started every month, okay, which is double the pace from four or five years ago. And I think a large driver of that is social media. It's just cool to be an entrepreneur these days. Don't work for the man. Uh, Be a number one. Take over your life, right? But what people don't tell the younger generation that want to move into entrepreneurship, which seems to be everybody these days, they don't tell them how hard it is. And the truth of the matter is that 90% of those businesses never, ever, ever pay their founder a living wage. 
ever. And 98% of those businesses never create what you've created, which is intergenerational wealth, um, the ability to retire. Uh, you know, you could take a paycheck out and you could eat, pay your mortgage, but you don't create any wealth out of the adventure. Only 2% of new businesses create any wealth. So the whole idea of this content is maybe we can change those odds a little by providing a methodology, strategies, skill sets, frame of mind. And oh, that's wow. it. What, a, that's what, a, what a wonderful project, Scott. I'm so, I'm so happy to be a small part of it. That's, that's fantastic. That is a really noble cause, uh, well, Scott, and you should be proud. Thank you. Thank you. And the, the four values that you've highlighted to me are your approach to doing exactly that, right? That's, yeah. that's how you've overcome those odds, which is why I just want to dive a little bit deeper, if you don't mind. So on the honesty front, I tell the story, maybe I haven't told it for a long time, but I, you know, I've always been, I'm an accountant. I've always been a relatively honest person. I always thought, um, and I've been a bit of a salesperson as well. So there's always this, you know, am I being honest or am I pushing too much or stretching the truth? Am I faking it till I'm making it? You know, all that sort of stuff. And I remember distinctly years, like decades ago, I was on a boys golf trip in Florida and I'm a terrible golfer. And I just made a decision. I want to try and see what happens if I'm just dead honest with myself. Forget about the other people. But I'm not going to take the gimme putt. I'm not going to take the mulligan <laughs> on the back nine. I'm not going to improve my lie. Um, I'm just going to I'm just going to be dead honest <laughs> within the rules about this. And I I did that. Like I said, I'm gonna, and, and it worked out well the first game. I mean, my score was horrible. My score went up 10 strokes, right? But <laughs> but uh, I tried that. And then it worked out well for me. So I tried it for the whole year. And, and again, it was more about me not lying to myself is what I was thinking about this facing reality. And it changed my business career, Larry. And I can't even, maybe that was coincidental. Maybe I was at the point where where my career was going to take off anyways, because I, you know, I sort of crossed that experience threshold, but maybe it's not a coincidence. And definitely a large part of my career success has been honesty and trust the, how other people perceive me. And I I'm think gonna add a color to what, I, I'm going to add a little color to what you say. Cause I, I took on, I'm, I'm not a very good golfer either, but I, I learned how to, I learned how to use it as a business tool because when I'm out golfing with someone, who I'm thinking about being in business with or doing something with, I learn some important things about that chap in three and a half, three hours or four hours that I might not learn in ten years in business. First of all, I can I I quickly learn if they can count. Yeah. I quickly learn how they deal with success. I quickly learn how they deal with failure, and I quickly learn if they have a sense of humor. And if they fail any of those items, in my mind, then then I have I have to ask more questions. And that you're you're right you're absolutely right on it is a mindset of of, of, of. so someone you, you probably didn't even realize it but some my, my father-in-law told me this to bless his soul before he passed he used the same techniques so I I, I stole them and it, it's wonderful so you were probably tested Scott and didn't even know it and that probably, probably led to your, yeah. your success yeah it, it was an amazing um it was a, an amazing test for myself and I just, you know, it's, 
when you work with troubled businesses or you find yourself in trouble as an entrepreneur or you find yourself in trouble in personal situations, it's tempting. It's really tempting to spin, to take a different perspective that maybe isn't reality in any reasonable person's mind and to convince yourself that you're not lying, that you are being honest. And it's so, so to me, it's always about me. It's always about a check on myself. And I, I, I'm just telling you, in my view, that's been a huge part of. Yeah. And you have to have a certain success. amount of narcissism. Yeah. You, and Scott, you have to have a certain gentle narcissism in your soul. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're going to be a CEO, right. because the company has to be me. You know, you have to take it personally. Well, to that to point, be- so my one question I wrote down on honesty is you talk in the book about aligning your personal values with your corporate values when you're an entrepreneur. Can you talk about that, please? Yeah, because and, and, I, I, I do make, uh, we, we all make uh, uh, mistakes in our personal life. One of, the, one of the questions that I always ask somebody when, when, they, when, when I was employing people, I don't, I'm happy I'm not employing anyone anymore. Uh, one of the questions I used to ask is, what is the biggest mistake you've, you've made? Um, and you could learn a lot of per- about a person about that mistake. But what it also showed me is that, you know, uh, you know, I, can you be honest about your personal mistakes? Can you be, can you be right. honest about things that didn't work? Uh, I'm a, you know, I, I'm a, I'm on to, you know, I've gone through two marriages and you know, I could, I could, I can go back and, you know, I, when I ask somebody what their biggest mistake would be, I'd always say in business. Uh, so I've categorized my, the mistakes I've made in business, and I've also categorized the mistakes I've made in my personal life. And I think they have to go together. You have to think long term when you're when you're uh, uh, you have to be honest. You have to think long term. You have to you know if you're in a partnership, if you're in a relationship, you have to add value to the other person in the relationship. Um, and uh, you, like I said right. earlier, you have to be with your intellectual and your emotional uh, resources. So I think it, it crosses over so easily and it becomes a pattern that becomes, it becomes a habit, into- which is where we started. Exactly. It becomes a habit. Exactly. It becomes a habit. So this long-term uh, thinking, um, so many entrepreneurs never have the time to reflect, to think, to do anything other than put out a fire. Right. And when I deal with, companies in transition. And what I mean by that is I deal with troubled companies, but I also deal with very high growth companies like your world uh, because it's the exact same set of issues. It's, it's, it's chaos needing a little bit of order put to it. And how did you, as a CEO, remove yourself from purely firefighting into longer term thinking? How did you handle the pressures of that? I took a vacation. I would isolate myself from the business completely for okay. a week. I, every major decision, when I decided to take the company, uh, it was time to take the company public. When I started the company in 1982, one of my missions was to take the company public within 10 years. 10 years later, fortunately, it all lined up that we could go public. Um, but I had to make that decision. It was time. When I had to decide not to sell the company back in 1986, I took a vacation. It, it, it's because these are major decisions. And I, what I would do is I'd, I'd categorize decisions in the following way. Will I remember this decision in 20 years? And if I'm going to remember that decision in 20 years, I'm going to do everything I can to give myself the time and the space to make right. that decision. Because that's a decision if you make wrong, will crush you. 
How many people sold their companies too early because they, they got attracted by the cash flow or something like that? How many people went to, into a market that they didn't really understand? And it was a big commitment from their organization and they applied too many resources to that, that marketplace and got, got skinned. So I, I, I call it a 20 year test. If you're going to remember a decision in 20 years, please pay attention to it. Uh, and, uh, and, and give yourself the space. Test. And give yourself the space. And I've made some of my biggest decisions uh, on vacations, uh, ski vacations, or just yep. uh, whatever, whatever, just away from, because we, you have to work on the business as well as in the business. And working on the business is when you get to think about the strategic issues related to growing that company. And it starts right at the beginning. Are you in a growing market? I'd, I always advise new people who are starting in their own business. Are you swimming with the current? Is the market going to be forgiving for you? It can Because you're going to make mistakes. But yes. are you in a market that's growing so that if you make a tactical mistake, you can recover easy and jump on the next? Uh, you get a lot more lucky if you're where the energy is. Uh, and, and like I said, flowing with the, you know, yeah. flowing with the current. And, and, you know, I started Calian in 1982. The IBM PC was introduced in 90, 1981. And I rode the technology services sector uh, for the next 20 years because the whole world changed. Right. And I was lucky enough. I, uh, you know, I always say building Callian was simple. It wasn't easy, but it was simple because I just adhered to the four rules. I worked my ass off 18 hours a day. And I took the time to evaluate when I had to make major changes in personnel, market direction, and what have you. And uh, the the market took care of the rest because the world was changing right in front of me. Opportunities were coming up that I yeah. had no idea were there. Yeah. Um, when it comes to adding value, you had put in the book a provocative sentence, I thought. You should only make money for what you do and not what you know. Yeah, business and, is a verb. It's not a noun. Yeah, yeah and if you know something that will help another. It is usury to charge them for that knowledge unless you are adding value as well. As a professional, yep. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if I was taking objection to that or not, but I think I understand your point. Well, I, I was in the service business. Yeah. I was in the service business. So my job, and I wasn't the person providing the service by the time you know, it, it, it got to that level. Sales, my first year sales yeah. were forty-seven thousand. Second year sales were a hundred thousand. I was still in the business. By the time I got around to year four or five, the sales the sales were up to four or five million, and yeah. I wasn't doing contracts myself. And right. within ten years, we we're thirty-five million. So when I had a relationship with someone, if I knew something that could make that business person better, I'd share it with them. I'd energetically share share it with them, um, and, and if it could help. And that's when it comes back to you as a CEO. Yes. It comes to you because five years later, that person could quite, you know, could, you know, might feel obligated, might feel that he wants to open the door to you to something that you hadn't seen. So that's what I meant by that is it's don't, don't, don't try and, and, and uh, grab every nickel you can. I, I used to have a phrase that uh, when I started Callion as a one person consulting company in the tech services sector, there were five other people that started companies at the same time, and they're all probably, I don't know where they are now, but they didn't, they didn't blossom. And I always used to joke that they were, that they were uh, uh, too greedy to make any real money. 
Right. They they weren't building a business. They were trying to make that. It's more manipulative, right? That sort of mindset. In, yeah, yeah. I want to make a nickel on everything I do instead of having that long term that long term approach to it. We wanted to add value, yeah. and and I'm so proud of Callian because it's it's now running about six hundred seven hundred million dollars a year in revenues, and they still Is have that? that attitude. Yeah, it's it's amazing the culture. Uh, they've had a succession of brilliant CEOs. Uh, um, I always used to joke. I tried. I tried. I always tried to hire people that were much smarter than me yep. around me as I was in the company. Until one day, I stopped saying that. When one day they came into me and said, "Larry, you know that's not all that hard." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but but they they've had really good good CEOs. Two the two CEOs that followed me are you know ultimately. Uh, Brilliant, value-added people who uh, who continue to grow the company. So it's, and I'm not even on the board anymore. I'm a, I'm just a happy shareholder who collects his dividends. Good for yeah. you. That's that's a great story. Your your last value was prudence, and I, I took note that you went out of your way to explain that prudence is not caution, and it reminded me of one of my pillars is positivity. And I spent a long time thinking about positivity, why that works, why it's so important, why everybody talks about positivity. And what I concluded is it's not about positivity positivity at all. It's about not being negative because it's negativity that breeds fear, uh, that freezes people, that manifests itself in stress and unhealthy personal relations and all of these negative things. And positivity is in fact a mitigating fa- a mitigation strategy for negativity in my mind. Okay. Scott, you're so you're you're so right on that. I used to I used to have a you always you're always gonna end up feeling afraid at some point or, or apprehensive. Exactly. And so I would say what what would I do if I wasn't afraid? And exactly what is it that I'm afraid of again? So I could dig deep into that. What is it that's causing me the, the fear? Because I'm naturally a very positive, you know, I, I, I call it the space cadet and the street fighter, which I also refer to in, in, in the book. It, you need those two personality traits, a space cadet dreamer, positive person all the time, and a street fighter, who I think I say in the book, throws nickels around like they're manhole covers. And you, you need those two. As a company grows bigger, you need much less of the space cadet. But when you need it, yeah, you really you need that space cadet when you want to go into a slightly different business, when you want to do something you haven't done before. You have to have that personal belief in yourself and your organization that you can actually accomplish something. And also, the, but the street fighter has to be right behind you just in case you made a mistake because you are going to make mistakes along the way and you have to be able to recover. And the ego part, you got to be able to remove the ego. You can't be committed. You've got to be committed going into an idea, but if the evidence is overwhelming that you've messed up, you can't let your ego get in the way to back away from it and change it, cut it, drop it. And uh, so, so you're, you're that, hitting- that's the heart of my business right there is entrepreneur turnaround business, entrepreneurs, leaders that can't accept failure, that it was them that made the wrong decision or didn't execute well, and then confirmation bias sets in. They just can't, they just can't admit it. And so it just, they have to be removed from the equation for that particular transition to happen. That's, that's just, that's just yeah, every no, day in my life. I, 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 I say that in a slightly different way. 
is I want to I want to work with people who can admit can admit failure. That's why I ask that question when I hire someone. What's the biggest mistake you made? Right. And you know, and you know, right a lot about a person when you know if they shuffle around and look down and look around and can't come up with. I, mean, I can list my biggest mistakes, you know, right down to the penny, almost. <laughs> and um, but but and, and why? Because you're. You know, what did Einstein say? If you find someone who's never made a mistake, you'll find someone who's never done anything. So I, uh, just before we got on, reality. yeah, just before we got on air here to shoot this, I I put out a TikTok or a one minute short, and um, I was trying to explain in this very short period of time that if you imagine you're playing a, a game of chess, yet every piece has the capabilities of the queen. It can move anywhere and do anything. How boring would that game be? And how quickly would that, how quick would that game be over? Like everybody would just wipe everybody out in a very short period of time. And that would be the end of it. The game is created by the limitations. And it's the same in life. It's the limitations that are the process. Otherwise, we wouldn't have anything to do. And the limitations in life and business are failure because that limits our course of action and values because they limit our course of action. It is the process. We have to embrace those failures, as you were saying. And if you can't embrace those, you haven't learned anything. That's my view. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're doomed to, you're doomed to repeat them. Exactly. And, and, and accountability is uh, so important. We, we, in the early days of Callie, and we stopped it at a certain point, but in the early days of Callie, I'd get my my team together and ask them what the you know, and everyone had to come up with a mistake they made that that week, and uh, so it, it got people That's comfortable really talking about mistakes. Talking about mistakes, it's it wasn't it wasn't taboo. I like that. I like that strategy. And what did we learn from that? Yeah, and yeah, and I mean, if, if, if one of the guys is continually making the same mistake, you have to have another conversation. Yeah, but. Uh, because they didn't learn, but that's the, <laughs> you know, what did we learn from it? So last thing on Callian and that entrepreneurial uh, experience, I just want to talk about your acquisition strategy and how that fits into building a business or doesn't fit into building a business. And, and before you dive on that, I'll, I will remind you and tell this story for the audience that I started in 1994, a corporate finance boutique firm in Ottawa by the name of Merchant Capital, which I sold in 2005 after some success and did a a lot of VC deals in Ottawa, small stuff back in the mid-90s. Like 94? 94. I, I hung my shingle in late 94 and okay. um, sold in 2005. But we, I was out of Ottawa by then. But, but I bet you we did, in two, three years, we did probably 80 small VC deals as a well intermediary and Ottawa was hopping in those days they weren't all in Ottawa but a lot of them were and i was selling a company because i grew up in the m&a world and so when you when you sell a business when you come from the investment banking side that i come from you rely heavily on a process an m&a process and to do that you write a confidential information memorandum a sim and you say, here's the company. And, you know, there's a teaser letter and a database to perceive that. And then you get some interested parties. You sign an NDA. You have a SIM and it says, here's what's going on. Like, this is the company. Here's how we're going to sell it. Uh, put your bids in. 
and we negotiate from there, and here's the timelines. And the whole intent of that in the process is to communicate that A, this is real, and B, there's a process, and you get to choose whether you want to participate or not. And so Callian was the bidder, was a bidder of about four or five, as I recall, at one company that I was selling. And so I was a youngster back then. You will you will probably not remember, but I remember because I who are these Callian people in this public company? <laughs> and so we had a few bids in, but I I was uh, I went to meet your team, and I, I feel like there was eight people or ten people from your company in a boardroom and me. I, don't hold me to that. Maybe it was four or five, but it felt like a lot at the time. And uh, Tom, Tom, Tom Coach would have been one of them, and Jerry Johnson, and you probably remember some of those. I, I don't remember the names, and uh, we ended up doing a deal with somebody else. But but what these what these guys were trying to do. And properly so, by the way. But what they were trying to do was not participate in the process, but rather just negotiate a deal, right? Because, I mean, as a buyer, who the, who the hell wants to participate in that process? And so I'm just sticking to my guns, and I know that I'm going to end up with a great deal for my client. And then you walked in the room, mostly just to say hello, I think, as the as the CEO chairman there. You walked in the room, and one of your executives looked at you and said, he won't negotiate. <laughs> right in front of me <laughs> and you looked at me and then you looked at and then he explained why like you won't negotiate and you looked at me and you looked at him and you you almost yelled at them and you said he is negotiating can't you see that that is the negotiation <laughs> i don't know why you're missing that and so that <laughs> Anyways, Larry, as you go through life, there's, there's, you know, those five or six lines that you pick up along the way that you always remember. Yeah. And I always remember that line. That was one of, that's on my list. You know, <laughs> I, I had long since forgotten that, but I do remember <laughs> we, we laughed about that for, for weeks afterwards, actually <laughs> internal. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was me. Um, okay. You grew in part through acquisitions. Yep. How did you, as an entrepreneur... I talk with lots of young entrepreneurs, largely because of the content uh, right now, but I also advise some and coach them. And this is always an issue. Should we buy? Should we not buy? How do we do this? How did you evaluate that as a CEO? Well, I got very lucky in 1984, 1985, a company called Science Applications International out of the United States, SAIC, tried to buy us. They wanted to buy us. Our sales were small, a couple million bucks. But they wanted to foothold into the Canadian marketplace. So I went through that entire process of the letters and then the negotiations and the valuations as a potential seller. And then I realized that was one of these 20-year decisions and I declined to sell. Uh, But that was my uh, two-month education in in acquisition strategies and acquisitions. So I was armed with the appropriate letter, the appropriate structure, the appropriate understanding of it from a, from a, a potential seller's perspective, and uh, I use you know then there was an opportunity to buy a company called Miller Communications, and I applied all of those lessons, and I bought Miller Communications, and and I just it was on the job training, and is the deal and and it's the important when I early, mentioned earlier the narcissistic part of being an entrepreneur. When I look at the when I looked at uh, the 
the acquisition opportunity, I would ask myself the question, why would I do that? What is the what are the benefits to me? And by me, I didn't mean me personally. I meant the company. Right. What are the benefits to the company? What where can we go with this opportunity? What what is it that really makes sense here? And do I know enough about it? Am I thinking long term? Am, am I adding value? All those tests. And then we succeeded in doing one or two small acquisitions. And then in 1998, we were a seven million dollar, eight million dollar company. We had a chance to buy a company that was. $21 million in revenues out, in, out west in a company called FED Systems. And it was the same idea, except this was even more opportunistic because um, for a whole bunch of reasons, there was a lot of people who wanted to buy that company, but nobody wanted to leave it in Saskatoon where it was detail. I won't get too far. Yeah. But we, we, did, we did what other companies wouldn't do and agreed to to everything that the government of Saskatchewan wanted us to do. And they just made the deal easy for us. So it's opportunistic, jump in, but always ask yourself the question, why would I do that? And um, and just, and the more confusing the deal can be, the probably the better off for the buyer if you, if you keep on top of all the, I mean, you, you know that. As a, exactly. That's so, my sweet spot. Yeah. So, so I don't know if I had a, a, a methodology, Scott, but I, I certainly would look at it in terms of what benefits will be der, derived, derived from that. And in the case of all of them, it was about the people. I, the, the, the president of SED became the president of Calian Technology. Ah. So because he was the highest, he was, he was the most gifted. And, and making uh, sure, I assume, that they fit with your four values and think the same way. And, and they did. The, yeah. None of them, it never made through that. They all thought, the same way that, that I, I I did, and so the, the values were good. So Let's um, the, the one bunch of that I've seen when I studied acquisitions, the the, the 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 one that seemed to screw the companies up the most often, or the people up, was when they couldn't integrate the information systems. The inf- if the information systems in the companies were not a, a ready fit for each other, then you're going to have trouble. Well, yeah, I mean that's a. The, the the nuts and bolts of the integration is a big issue. Culture is a big killer. Yeah. Or CEOs that are just acquiring acquiring to bolt onto a platform because they think the market will reward them, and that's what they're doing. Aurora Cannabis announced uh, their earnings last week, and they 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 were two hundred twenty million, I think, of net revenue uh, for the year ended June twenty twenty two, and they they lost one point seven billion. On that revenue, of which 1.2 billion is an intangible asset write-off, which is all acquisitions, obviously, right? So that they were just just throwing crap onto the platform because the market would reward them for a little while, and it came home to roost. Yeah. Well, so, you know, the magic word is accretive, and uh, uh, so you know, you always sometimes it wasn't possible, but. Most of the time, you wanted something to be accretive, and I always wanted the management team that would stay. Yep, um, and, and they could fit into our organization. And uh, so it, it, we, we got lucky. I mean, there was a couple that didn't work out for us, um, but fortunately, there were smaller ones, and we could roll them in. Uh, but you just hit the nail on the head. We just rolled them their contracts in, as opposed to trying exactly. to as opposed to having a real strategic issue with what the people could do and where the company could take it was just about the contracts. 
and they were always not not as rewarding um, and and little not as rewarding for us and definitely not as rewarding for the uh, for the seller because they they didn't get a chance to become part of a, a bigger team so. right right let's transition into your current venture uh, dgov three and maybe start uh, Larry with your what what has driven your interest in politics and government um, starting back with becoming the mayor of Ottawa and then later in your career taking up this project? Well, I had done everything that I had wanted to complete in business. Um, and so I knew I, I knew I needed something else. I wanted to build a company that would last forever. That was my goal. And I was comfortable that I had at least set the groundwork for a company that could go on forever and didn't necessarily want to be sold or, or anything, but, but could live on its own. So I was losing interest um, in, in the business thing. I'd, so I said, okay, politics. I was most interested in federal politics. So I thought to myself, why don't I run for the next mayor's, uh, raise my profile. And so when the next right. federal election comes along, I will be able to run as a federal, uh, the federal level, which would be like a state senator or a congressman down in the States. Uh, but damn it, I won. And so I was really, <laughs> I, and I really didn't know a lot about municipal politics, but I sure had a, uh, that's, I had my six months, I had my four year MBA course in politics. Right. And I'm sure you did. So, so I went through it. I got through it. I, I, it was tough. Uh, it was ugly. It was, uh, it was a rough, a rough, uh, a run for me because I wasn't a politician and I probably made every mistake a politician could make in four short years and it, same way as I did in, in business. I came out without an appetite for continuing in, in business, but I began to think, how can we make this better? Because a lot of people were saying they're not happy with the political process that, you know, the, you know, we're getting terrible politicians. Uh, the average person wasn't getting a voice in what was going on. So uh, I had joined a group called prior arts, prior arts.io. Um, and you can download a white paper on this topic from prior arts.io. And, uh, we we started looking up at ways of applying uh, blockchain technology and new technologies to make the world better. How can we solve some of the world's bigger problems? And because I had been in politics, I took on the concept of politics as my as as a as an idea. How can we, how can we apply blockchain? How can we apply smart contracts? How right. can we apply AI? How can we apply some of these new technologies to make the political process better for the average citizen? So this prior arts. Is this a business? Is it a not-for-profit? Is it a movement? This wasn't clear to me. Uh, prior, prior Arts is a for-profit organization. Okay. DGov3, which we have spun off from Prior Arts, which I am now completely committed to, is a not-for-profit, nonpartisan organization. Um, okay. But I managed to convince the people in Prior Arts that this is too, too big a potential opportunity uh, for us to Try and you know uh, make uh, you know turn. Tur this shouldn't be about making money. This should be about creating a better uh, governance process. So gotcha. what we what we and and so what we did is we we focused on how do we merge direct and representational democracy together in a way that makes sense. Direct democracy doesn't work. You know you you can't let the people make all the decisions because the people will get swayed by what they had for dinner last night and they will they don't have the time to dig into the issues. So using some of the new tools that we have that we didn't have 20 years ago, 
we could go now and elect people to become our our representatives. They can be our, the trustee of our vote, or they could be the delegate of our vote at the municipal level or at some other level. And they can do everything that they would normally do after, you know, from the time that John Locke wrote his Treaty of Representa- Representational Democracy in 1670. We can, life hasn't changed since then for any democracy. But this time, we can say, under certain circumstances, we can go back to the people in a certain constitutional manner. We can send a message back to the people that, and, and give them an option of two or three things that the representatives aren't agreed upon. And the people could vote. And in that feedback loop, we could, we could alter the weight of the representation, representative's vote in his political organization based on the support he has from the people on that specific issue. Right. So, so to my layman's terms, is that effectively turn, turning everything into a referendum? No, no, no. It's because a referendum, um, it is a, it is a very clearly defined, uh, rep, uh direct democracy where when you're setting up the constitution for an organization, because referendums don't, they haven't proved to work very well. well that's where I'm heading. They're, they're, yeah. They get, they get, they get hijacked by different, you know, you're in, in a democracy, you're always, uh, sort of, uh, weighing the, 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 the will of the majority versus, uh, uh, the protection of the minority. So you have to, so, so, so those are the sorts of things that you have to weigh in a democratic system. But in certain circumstances, Let's just give give an example. Um, you have ten people on your city council. Nine of them don't want to buy the fire truck because they're too conservative and cheap. One person wants to buy a new fire truck. You go to the people, and ninety percent of the people want to buy that new fire truck, and they're willing to pay for it. Okay. That one that one rep's vote is now worth ninety percent of the votes of council. And you can do all that in an okay. immutable fashion immutable fashion through the blockchain. You can do it in a way that it's not interfered uh, through by, by any other, you know, by any outside organization. You can, you can, you can tie it down pretty tight. Um, so that is a concept. Now it's early days. We have just started this program. We, we, I can't tell you it's going to work or not, but we've created this organization called BGov3. And I'm more excited about this than I've been excited about anything since I started Gallium. So, we are so going to start Larry, what, one what, what specific problems does this solve in our current system in, in either country? And I know that you listed those in your white paper, but if we could. Just... You know, the influence of the, the influence of, uh, of lobbyists, yes. um, the, you know, as soon as some, as soon as a rep gets elected, he starts to lose touch with his, with his, uh, constituents, with the people who elected him. Yeah. And he's influenced more by the lobbyists and, and maybe by other, you know, maybe trade-offs and things. Now, where we are looking at this right now is at the lowest possible level of governance, municipal, municipalities, student uh, unions in, in colleges, um, maybe in, in unions themselves. Uh, we have a lot of work to do, but we're starting an organization to do research into uh, how to apply technology to make democracy better for everyone. That includes the, you know, the, the the ordinary people, maybe the representatives too, because they'll be held more accountable now to the public on certain issues. Defining what those issues are, that's going to be the riddle. 
because you know you can't you know you, you can't let how do you say this in the appropriate way um, the people have to be well informed before they make a decision about what decision they're they're making so this isn't going to be every issue that comes across the representative representative's plate that you send out for direct democracy this is going to be one where maybe it's a 20 year decision are you going to put in an LRT system? Yeah. Are you going to close down something? Maybe the 20 year test is going to come to this. I'm using my four principles again as I look at this project. And so far, we've got a couple of universities behind us. Uh, we are really a couple of corporations are behind us. We're look, we're just at the early days by November. We want to be able to push the start button to examine in a very thorough fashion what technology can do. And DGUP3, the, the little the white paper I sent you, is one example. What can technology do to make our democratic process feel and be fairer? Because I think a lot of people are losing losing confidence. They're starting to become uncomfortable. A lot well, of, I, I think I, I, I somebody think I know be. recently said somebody I know recently said that he thought all, all all politicians were crooks or dishonest or something like that. That might have been me. And, <laughs> could have been you. <laughs> and, and and, you know, no, I think the important. system. I think the system is corrupt. I'm not pointing fingers at an individual, and particularly yeah. in the U.S. By the way, um, the system needs to be, and, and and we need to be able to have these big discussions. How can we alter the system slightly? Because I believe I'm a big believer in the U.S. Uh, governance system. I mean, it is truly beautiful. Uh, you know, for a sovereign state, uh, I love it. I think it's great. But are there places we can make some small modifications? So that the people feel more involved on certain issues that are important to them. Um, I, I think I, it I comes back to. Your... I hope the answer is yes, but we need to prove it. We need to. There's a there's a PhD thesis in here somewhere. I, I think the That's... issue with the system right now is the is the lack of honesty and disintegration of all institutions, and and the idea people just don't believe in the vote. Right. No matter who wins, it's not just a left, right. Like it's if, if the right wins next election, the left are going to say the vote was corrupt. So there's a phrase in blockchain technology. There's a phrase in blockchain technology called immutable. Can't be changed. It's transparent. It's immutable. Right. There's only two things in this world. I, I really believe in pleasure and math and the blockchain technology provides you a basis, a mathematical so, basis. So explain in layman's terms for people the blockchain and smart contracts, if you can, please. Well, <clears throat> the blockchain is a distributed network that allows you to make a I'll – use, I'll use crypto. I'll use a Bitcoin because that's the easiest way yes. to – so I can take a Bitcoin and transfer it to you, Scott, on this distributed network where there's no central source of control. It's distributed all over the world. 20,000 computers are, are involved in, in making this decision. There's no single point of failure. There's no single point of control. But I can transfer a, a, a crypto to you, and within a half an hour, every computer in the world knows that I've transferred that crypto coin, that Bitcoin to you, and if, if there's nothing else that can be done about it. And the blockchain is a record of that transaction in a in a uh, what they call a distributed autonomous organization 
which is basically something that lives on a blockchain. You could you could have a vote for something. You could you could let the people vote with their their cell phones, and that vote is is immutable and buried inside the blockchain and cannot be touched. It cannot be altered. It cannot be. It can't even uh, be affected. reversed. Like it's just. It, and it can't be reversed. Yeah. Can't can't be reversed. So there's a lot of promise here. There's no guarantees. There's a lot of promise here that um, you know the, the the metaverse, the Web three, uh, blockchains, and some of these things that were that people you hear people throwing around uh, like NFTs. They're just not all cartoon pictures. There are certain things that can be done with these technologies exactly. that people are just starting to waken up to. And my focus and our focus is how do we do it in the world of democratic governance? And I would urge important. people to, as they're thinking about this, you need to separate out the application from the technology. So Bitcoin is the application, one application of many for a blockchain technology. And you, you could believe Bitcoin's going to zero or not. It doesn't change the fact that that blockchain is the technology behind it that makes that a secure, tradable. It'll be a secure zero. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so, but but, but that's the point. The people people are just starting to now realize that that you know cryptos and you know these pictures that people are selling in NFTs. The real power of this is the blockchain, and now people are starting to build up organizations. Wyoming, I think it's Wyoming has now created a center of excellence for, for, for blockchain technology. And they're actually saying you can start a company in Wyoming and have it registered as a, as not resident in the legal system, but resident on a blockchain, which is, you know, fascinating. Quite, quite interesting. Fascinating. fascinating. So when it comes to democracy so, and voting, it seems to me, I'm going to try and say this without getting my channel completely banned from all platforms. It seems to me that the, the, the flaw with electronic voting systems is twofold. One is that no one believes that they're not hackable. And I don't mean like breaking into the software or hacking it, although that could be true, but that at the front end or in the middle or in the rear end somewhere at the end of that process, there's there's some sort of manipulation of the process. And it's not there's no audit trail. So there's no visibility as to what the hell is going on inside the black box, which feeds the first problem. And and so whether you believe an election is is fair or whether you believe it's corrupt, if people are looking at this black box and they can't get visibility and they can't audit anything by definition, you're you're never going to have the confidence of the people that use that system. So first of all, yeah. and then I think the blockchain fixes both of those problems. First of all, for a fact, it's not hackable. And second of all, it's a complete audit trail from start to finish. Am, am I right about that? You're absolutely right, which is why, you know, our group has such great, uh, uh, great hopes. But right now they're hopes. We need to do research. We need to have use cases. Uh, where, you know, because this is a brand new area. The concept of, of, of um, creating a hybrid direct Representative democratic election process could wasn't possible twenty years ago because we didn't have the technology yes. and the possibility of doing that in a way that's not corruptible, un, uh, that, that is that is uh, verifiable, uh, transparent, and cannot be monkeyed around with is something that we couldn't do twenty years ago. So why aren't we as a society 
investigating this. So that's why we've turned Vega 3 into a not-for-profit, um, uh, nonpartisan organization. And we're starting to attract a lot of interest. Not, you know, we all have hopes. And like any research and any development program, we need more partners. We need more people involved. We have some corporations in the network business and the, and, and the blockchain business that are, that are jumping out alongside us. If you jump on, uh, priorites.io, um, that's our website. You can download our white, white paper. If you want to uh, jump in and be a volunteer, there's also a place to be an app to apply there. But this is, this is going to be fun. And, uh, so, so sorry, just before we lose that. So okay. that's prior arts, P R I O R A R R A R T S. A R T S. Dot I O. And people, and I looked at that site before I jumped on here. So that definitely works. Prior arts.io. And there, I think under the democracy or voting section or something, there is a white paper that you can download. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and just before I leave this, this topic, Larry, and I, I, we're at the top of the hour here now. Um, the flip side to what I said about integrity in the system and an audit trail is the flip side to that, not that we would lose anonymous voting by definition. Well, there's something called um, zero value, uh, zero knowledge tokens okay. that, were, that, that, that allow you to make a vote um, securely and confirm the vote. And have uh, and have the person who voted uh, completely invisible to anyone. It's, okay. They're, 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 so there's so much science going right now. Yeah. There's the zero knowledge tokens are are spectacular. There's there's universities and 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 uh, doctor uh, you know scientists all over the world working on how to make make this a, a reality. That's a fascinating uh, so area for sure. This, this, it's it's going to blossom. The, the, there's a there's a reason that uh, uh, Facebook changed its name to the to Meta. Because the metaverse is going to change the whole world, and uh, in very practical ways, and yeah. we're just getting to the point where the practicality of it is starting to become, you know, obvious. And so we're just taking a tiny. I can send my icon and to vote. Is that the <laughs> in the <laughs> I metaverse? Don't, don't um, Larry, we're the winning momentum podcast. As I said before, the idea here is things are going well. The idea behind the momentum is me for 30 years working in troubled businesses and wondering to myself, when is a business not troubled? When is this, you know, when is this over? <laughs> and is it when we're making money? Is it when we're breaking even? And what I've arrived at is that everything in life is about momentum. And it's when you wake up in the morning and things are a little better than they were yesterday. You just know that with confidence. That's a positive momentum. And when that happens, it attracts energy, it attracts human resources, it attracts capital resources. And so I ask everybody, I would like to ask you one, two, or three strategies to create positive momentum, either in your personal life or your business, when things aren't going the way you think. How do you turn that around? How the yeah, way that you I think, think what you just said is nothing. Yeah, I think what you just said is nothing succeeds like success. And once you have a successful that that positive momentum, um, Depending upon, I made some political mistakes, and one of our, our prime ministers called me into his into his uh, house, and he said, "Larry, I've been in politics for forty years. He says, I just learned one thing: when you're up to your neck in shit, don't open your mouth. You won't like the taste." 
And so, so, so you have to get to the point where you understand you're in trouble. And then I think it's just the hard work of, uh, for me, it would just be the hard work of understanding, being honest about why I'm there, trying to think about what the long-term solution is to, to get out of it. How am I going to add value to people who are going to help me get out of it? And, and, and what's the least expensive way of getting out? So I applied my, I'd apply my four rules. But the other thing is I, I would, I'd keep a, a, a positive attitude. It's, I mean, it's everything we talked about today. You just have to apply it. Uh, and uh, my definition of success is when you're building, when you've built a company, if you believe it has the culture that it wants to go on forever, independent of your input, that to me is a success. I agree. I mean, that's, that's the definition of value right there transferable yeah. value anything else we want to cover no you've covered i i don't know who's going to listen to an hour and, and, and an hour of, uh, of this conversation but thank you very much for having me on scott i appreciate it it was fun it was uh, it was a lot of fun it was great to have you larry how and why should people reach out to you if you want people to oh, reach they can out get to me you. At, anybody who wants to reach out to me they can go in through my linkedin or they get larry at larryobrien.net Larry at LarryO'Brien.net. Uh, I've still got a few copies of my 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 book. If if anyone, uh, see how, yeah, here, hold on. I still have a few copies of my book. I don't think they're in print anymore, uh, but you can download it for free. Uh, that's that's much better. You can download that for free off of uh, Amazon. Uh, but if you, anybody wants to talk about anything, um, I'm always available. I love helping entrepreneurs, and I love uh, talking to people who are trying to solve problems so larry at larryobrien.net all right everybody thank you for listening this has been the winning momentum podcast with my special guest larry o'brien larry thank you so much again it's been it's been a lot of fun thank you for listening and we will see you next week